Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Open House Podcast today with me, your host, Louise Rumble. And I am so happy to have my guest today as Sarah Murphy, my great friend and incredibly knowledgeable practitioner. Today, we are talking about the biology of the binge. We're talking about those biochemical cycles that lie behind emotional eating and this incredible concept of, are you starving for love or are you starving food? Now, we have so much to talk about today, and I, for one, have been on this journey my whole entire life. I remember as young as 10, my mum really saying to me, like, do you need that second plate of macaroni cheese? And I literally remember in my head being like, fuck you. Like, I was eating it, like, not because I was hungry. I was eating it because I needed, like, that thick, warm carbohydrates inside of me. and. For the rest of my life, I've always been like that. I look at people that love salads, like Sarah's definitely a healthier eater than me. I look at my sister-in-law, who's literally like a rabbit. If it's not crunchy green and like orange, she doesn't want it. And for me, I just think that's not nice. That's not a nice way to eat. Like how you don't feel warm and full up like you do with a bowl of pasta or you do with a pizza. Now, I never really understood what was going on here until I started working with Sarah, until I started working with a therapist. My therapist started to introduce these concepts of warmth and cold. And I was like, oh, we're going to get into that today. And also when I had my neurotransmitters tested, it showed that I had low levels of dopamine, which I know is something that Sarah is going to get into today and how that can be so deeply and intrinsically tied to emotional eating. 
So Sarah, hi, welcome back. So happy to have you here. And I would actually just love to start with what is emotional eating? Like we all know we get stressed. We reach for something that maybe we shouldn't. But do you think it's fair to say that there are these like biological drivers of emotional eating too? Hi, Louise. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast again. And once again, I'm so excited to share this critical information with your guests. So there is such a huge connection between the biological underpinnings of emotional eating that no one really knows about. I really can't wait to get into this and the connection between our nervous system states and our emotional eating as well. First up, I want you to know that food is so widely available to us and is such an intrinsic human need that we overlook how it can become everyone's number one drug. Food is everywhere. We have to eat and we can't stop eating, but it's the most widely available soothing mechanism that we can find. And most people don't even look at food as a drug, but it functions the exact same way as drugs do. And I think this is really important for people to understand. The basics are that emotional eating is a way to suppress or soothe our negative emotions, such as fear, when we're bored, when we're sad, when we feel lonely, all those feelings of discomfort. Eating food can be a way that we self-soothe feelings that don't feel great. And sometimes we can turn to food for comfort, and this may be consciously or even unconsciously. Our bodies need to survive, so it makes sense that eating lights up a reward system in our brain that makes us feel temporarily better. Food can make us feel amazing at times. It's natural to have an emotional connection to food. Most people do. We use food to celebrate. We use it to connect to people. Food is associated with nurturing. For some people, though, that this cycle turning to food to cope can actually create feelings of guilt and feelings of shame and can actually create even more tough feelings for someone to navigate if they are using food as a coping mechanism. But these cravings have such a biological underpinning to them and, and can even bring us back to unconscious behaviors we had as children, ways in which we soothed ourselves or made ourselves feel safe in our bodies. Again, it, this is soothing our nervous systems in time of distress. And I think understanding the biology of emotional eating and our nervous system states can really help us understand the importance of why our bodies are doing what they're doing, why we're reaching for what we're reaching for, and really to understand how to fix this issue at the root if we are using food to soothe our emotions. I love that you're bringing awareness to these cycles because like you said, it can be unconscious or it can be subconscious. Like so many times I will just get to a Friday evening when I used to live in London and be like, I deserve to lie on the sofa and order a pizza. And I would order literally the same thing. It would be, it would be from this place called Pizza Express, which if you're British, you'll know it. It would be the doughballs to start with the garlic butter and I'd order an extra garlic butter because dipping that damn fucking dough in that garlic butter was honestly too good. Then I'd have the main pizza would be like the thin crust, like pepperoni pizza. And I'd also dip the crusts into the garlic butter. And then I wasn't finished there. Then I would get the chocolate fudge cake for dessert, right? Now, was I hungry? No, probably not. Or maybe I was, who knows? But like, what I know is that was my reward for me at the end of the week, literally every Friday night. And then I also go as far as to say, like, there is nothing I like more in life than eating with people that I love. You and I have sat in these restaurants in Tulum before 
where the food is like so amazing and the music's amazing and we're together and life is just like so good. Like I'd always prefer to do that with my loved ones than to like have a drink. So I think it's so important that we're putting awareness and shining a light on how there can be these emotional cycles behind what we do. And I think my first thing for everyone listening is like, we all know sometimes that when we get stressed, we want to do certain things. But I would also look at the cycles around that. The Friday night cycles, the Sunday afternoon cycles. Are there any cycles that are coming to mind that you're like, hey, I didn't realize I was doing that. I think that's an awesome place to start. And with you, I would love to ask, like, how can we actually tell the difference between, I guess what you're saying is like a self-soothing hunger or an emotional hunger versus actual physical hunger, like when our body actually needs that food? Yes, I think it's really important to understand and actually know what the differences are, just so you can be aware of these types of patterns. When we're physically hungry, we will experience physical sensations in our stomach, but it'll feel empty. It'll growl, that grumbling feeling. Also, when we're physically hungry, the physical sensations come on slowly. After a meal, you got to build your way up to hunger. It's a slow sensation of finally, okay, I'm hungry at this moment. Also, the physical hunger should come up to two to three hours after you eat a meal. Again, that's looking at the physical cues there. So you said the word should there, like you should feel hungry two to three hours after eating. And that is something that I can absolutely guarantee you that I never do. I have issues with my appetite. That's because my body's stressed. We talk about it all the time. But for everyone listening, like, what do you mean should? Yeah. So it's very important to understand that so many people are disconnected from their appetite because they are in this fight or flight situation. We can get into this more in another episode, but if you're not hungry within one hour of waking up, that means that your stress hormones are too high. And that also means that you're running on adrenaline. And this is not where you want to be. You want to listen to your actual physical hunger. You want to be in tune with your body's appetite. And so if it's off, you're never feeling hungry. That's also a situation there. But let's get into a couple of the emotional hunger signs. So if we're emotionally hungry, we want the food right away. We want, we need, it comes on very intense. It's also intensified if we're experiencing emotions such as extreme stress, when we're angry, when we're experiencing anxiety, or when we're sad. These are the times that it's like that rivacious hunger. And these desires for food may feel tied to the desire to soothe yourself, to comfort. Again, think about when we're babies, how we got comforted by like breastfeeding with our mothers. Food is also that way to like soothe and numb an emotion. You're searching for a comfort through it. We all also might experience physical sensations in the stomach that might feel like anxiety. So it's not a feeling of hunger. It's more of an anxious feeling. This also occurs independent to the last time you ate. So it doesn't even matter. It's not real hunger. It's not three hours after your meal. It's independent to the time you ate, again, in those emotional situations. I think that's so important to understand there. It's crazy what you've shared there about how if you're not hungry within one hour of waking up, like if you're not hungry to eat breakfast in the morning, that can be a sign that you're in fight or flight. And I think you and I talk often about how that's why intermittent fasting can often not be good for everybody. You think, oh, I'm not hungry, so I'm just not going to eat. But the truth is, is you're actually pushing your body further into a state of stress rather than sort of learning to nourish it and nourish it gently. And I, for one, really have to 
make a very conscious effort to eat breakfast every single morning because otherwise I absolutely know that I wouldn't. So I thought that was crazy. And I think it was also so helpful for you sharing the difference between emotional hunger coming on faster, whereas like real hunger sort of builds slowly and you can, you're like, oh, like, I think I'm hungry. I'll, I'll be fine. I'll get home in half an hour and get something. Whereas with the other one, it's like, I need the food. Like I need to get delivery. I need to get a pizza, et cetera, et cetera. And another thing that you've taught me is this connection between like emotional hunger and emotional eating and our neurotransmitters is wild. And when you taught me about that, it enabled me to start to see, okay, Louise, you don't actually need food in this moment. Your body needs something else. And that's been really, really revolutionary for me. Even yesterday, I said to my boyfriend, like, I'm so hungry, like I'm desperate to just eat a bowl of pasta. And then I was like, I rephrased it. I was like, I'm not so hungry, but there's some part of me that desperately needs to be soothed in this moment. And so bringing awareness to this is really cool. But I'd love it if we could just go into this concept of like warmth, like food as warmth. Yes, food as warmth. So now we talk all the time about how attunement in childhood can actually impact our neurotransmitter development, and it can work in the same way. So if you have an imbalance in these neurotransmitters, if you have high stress hormones, high blood sugar levels along with that, all of these combinations can drive you to start emotionally eating. So it's very important to understand your home environment as well. And there was a study done by the University of London that found that early life home environment was one of the main causes of emotional eating later in life. So this was due to parental behaviors, including giving upset children their favorite food to self-soothe them when they were upset. The parent who gives the child the, the sucker just so that the child will stop crying, the child learned this behavior. And the research said that emotional eating was an enduring trait that could continue throughout your life. They noted that the pattern of using food to self-soothe could be passed down also from generation to generation because you can see these same patterns. The grandmother did that to your mother and then your mother did that to you. So this could also be a subconscious pattern that has been instilled in you since a child, making the connection, your stress, your feeling discomfort. What was the one thing that you got as a child? You got the food to soothe your body and all of a sudden you felt better. So again, that could be subconsciously driven. This is so fascinating. And I also love that I understand that there can be medical issues involved with weight gain and obesity, et cetera, et cetera. But when you start to understand the connection a little more between emotional eating and the nervous system, you can look around yourself and see. Now, if I see someone that is really, truly very obese, I do wonder, wow, what is going on? What did you go through that meant that you're not saying always, but like some part of you needed to, to self-soothe, to escape? And I love the thing you said about generation to generation, because we pick up things from our parents consciously or subconsciously. Because like on the flip side, my mum is tiny. She's like five foot one. She like doesn't eat a huge amount. She's really so thin. Like her legs are like my arms. And I'm like, how is that possible? <laughs> and she doesn't eat a lot. So she says to me things like, you don't need to eat that much. You don't need to eat three meals a day. And I'm like, no, mum, I do need to eat three meals a day. Like biologically, we need to be keeping our blood sugar regulated. We pick up so many things from our parents, like healthy, unhealthy, and it's our job really to shine a light on it. But I love where you've gone on this topic of self-soothing and coping, and I really can't wait to dig into that more. Do you think it's fair to say that food as a coping mechanism is really just like 
any other drug as a coping mechanism, like getting drunk, soothing our nervous system, having sex, soothing our nervous system, like taking drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that's a fair connection? Yes, absolutely, Louise. Like I said, food can be our ultimate soother. And people need to understand that an addiction is an addiction, no matter what that addiction is to. The purpose of addiction is to soothe pain. And whatever that pain may be, we're reaching outwards to soothe. And, you know, that pain is essentially an uncomfortable emotion we don't know how to deal with or how to process. So much like ways deficits in things like dopamine levels can result in addiction, having low dopamine function results in stronger cravings for food, which might result in episodes of, let's say, binge eating. And so when acting on any craving, it's very important to understand that our brain gets a reward. It starts to feel pleasure and you get that huge release of dopamine. And so essentially people are getting their fix by eating particular food until their brain has received all that dopamine that it was missing. You are in a deficit, so you have to get that somewhere. And so this can create a binge cycle and a loss of control and lead to a lot of psychological distress, just like any other addiction. Food is the drug and it can be like any other drug. So important that we understand that because I think that is when we can start to shed a light on those urges, those drivers, those feelings that come up from within us. We can start to put the conscious awareness on them and really start to say, okay, these are cycles that I'm going to, I'm going to work to biochemically change further down the line. And I know we're going to get into solutions later. But when we're talking about self-soothing, I'd love it if we could just go into like what that actually means. Cause it's kind of wild to think that food going in your mouth can make you feel loved or warm or cared for in the same way as someone like hugging you or loving you from the outside. So I'd love it if we could just explore a little bit more about this concept of self-soothing. Yes. So we've talked about the the polyvagal theory before on one of the previous podcasts, but important to understand that the polyvagal theory provides a new perspective on eating disorders. It stresses the importance of social connectedness and defines any type of eating disorder or emotional eating as a behavioral state of regulation. So what this essentially means is that the behaviors behind eating are a means to regulate our autonomic state and a way for us to feel safe and a way for us to soothe our bodies. Emotional eating surfaces because of intense experiences that overload an already vulnerable nervous system. So again, the stressed out state emotional eating will come in there. So we can look at the act of eating using the same natural platforms as the social engagement system. Ventral vagal, we associate eating with pleasure and feeling of calm and social engagement. And so essentially those who cannot move up and down the polyvagal ladder are using food as a self-soothing mechanism to regulate. So again, if you're not easily going from, I'm stressed, I'm calm, or you're maybe stuck in your dorsal, which is like you feel very depressed. If you're not able to move up and down into that ventral vagal, we're using food to try and get there. And so that's really important to understand when it comes to the nervous system and understanding what state you're in. That's so fascinating, the thought of it almost being like a ladder, because I think the thing I've learned from you about polyvagal theory is your nervous system is supposed to be able to shift into and through these different states. And as ever, we will link this diagram in the show notes in case you guys want to come and have a look at it. 
But what I learned from you there is like, if you don't have a resilient nervous system, and I say resilient, not in terms of being strong, but in the nervous system world, resilient means like being able to go through the different states and come back to homeostasis and balance. If you are not able to do that for whatever reason, for what maybe your nervous system's dysregulated, maybe it's dysregulated through trauma, maybe it was just wired into these states through childhood or in utero, whatever those things might be. What you just shared there is that you can use food basically as the ladder to climb you between states. And I would definitely say that's what I do. Like, I don't sit on the sofa on a Friday evening when I used to be in London and self-soothe myself. Like, no, it was a million times easier just to get the pizza. It also tasted fucking delicious. And I was like, I deserve this. But I love that concept of the ladder between the states. And again, if you guys aren't familiar with polyvagal theory, I would definitely go and look at the diagram. It's incredibly helpful to understand how food and eating can be tied into this. And I think that now we also understand these concepts of self-soothing and addiction. It also starts to make more sense to understand that if we were unhappy or disconnected or lonely or traumatized in childhood, because I mean, we already know the connection in adulthood, right? That's pretty A plus B equals C. But I think what's so important here is that we take it back to childhood. So I think it's really important that we understand how that might be setting the foundations for a relationship with food that's damaging later in life. And also you mentioned to me before that there's a connection between emotional eating and the anxious attachment style. Let's go into that because that is crazy. Yes, exactly. So we have to look at other factors of our early home life. So things that have to do with being nurtured and feeling seen and really feeling attuned to as a baby. If you didn't have these things, we developed an attachment style that wasn't secure. And so what does this mean? So this means that since your parent didn't attune to you and make you feel safe, you were not able to self-soothe yourself. So you end up going your whole life looking outside of you to feel soothed and regulated, searching for love, or again, searching for food, whatever that may be that is soothing to your nervous system. So it's been said in the research that emotional eating may be particularly common amongst individuals who have experienced insecure attachment, including anxious or avoidant attachment styles. And so these attachment styles may be linked to a decreased in ability to regulate our emotions and inability to self-soothe, which again can increase the risk of emotional eating. We're eating to tend to these emotions we don't know how to deal with. And so looking at early childhood brain development, within lack of attunement, we see pathways of an addictive pathology with early life experiences dramatically altering the number of neurons within the brain of the child. So it's important to understand that this leaves a child with underdeveloped oxytocin pathways. They, it may leave the child with low levels of serotonin, low levels of dopamine receptors that, not were, that were not properly formed. And this dramatically changes the way someone can experience pleasure and happiness later in their life. And they may end up outsourcing and needing more. And so it's important to note that all these changes in neurotransmitter production leads to mood disorders, inability to regulate stress, an overactive nervous system. And again, that is reaching to something to soothe ourselves, aka emotional eating. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What I think is so amazing is how so many episodes we do, actually underpinning them all, is this sort of pervasive experience, I guess, which is that when we're younger, we develop templates of what love is. And that attunement that we were given in childhood, it literally changed our biochemical makeup. It changed how our body created neurotransmitters. And that's why these childhood experiences can literally change who we are on a physical level, which can also change who we are on an emotional level. That's the piece that I feel like people aren't understanding today. And what I've taken from what you've just said there is like these experiences literally will change the pathways in our brain and change the way that our receptors form. This then means that it dramatically changes the way that we experience things. So something that a perhaps more regulated or healthy or more well-attuned person might experience, I might not experience the same way because I have low dopamine, for example, which I know from doing my tests. So I think that is amazing. And the other thing that I took from you there is that basically if you take that one step further, emotionally attuned caregivers helped us to learn how to soothe and how to be securely attached So you wouldn't really have to get that intense reliance on soothing from food, but some didn't. So for those who didn't, you're maybe more likely to develop disordered eating. And there's so many other things there that can come with that, like the emotional regulation, the perfectionism, the self-beliefs, the identity, the self-esteem, which are more on the psychological side of things, which I know we'll get into at some point. Do you think that's like a fair summary of where we've gone with this episode so far? Yes, exactly. So we end up turning to food to self-soothe our feelings of inadequacy and deal with our overly activated, stressed out system. And so just like we turn to relationships or anything else that can make us feel safety in our body, we're turning to food in the exact same way. Love that. That is fascinating. And I'd love it now if we could maybe go into some of the specific neurotransmitters involved, because I know a big part of what we're doing right now is we're in the education and we're in the awareness stage of what we're doing together on this podcast. And I know that we're also going to get to some solutions at the end of this episode. And hopefully this year, we're going to get into much more solution-based content so people can really change their lives, change their bodies, and really change their whole experience. But I think to do that, we really need to understand what is going on with these different neurotransmitters. So I'd love it if we could just talk about maybe like dopamine, serotonin, cortisol, and anything else that you think is really connected to this that I might have missed. Okay, let's first start talking about dopamine. So as we all know, dopamine is the reward neurotransmitter. You get it when you get what you wanted and also when you are waiting to get what you want. So the reward and gratification associated with food consumption leads to dopamine production, which then turns and activates the reward and pleasure centers on in our brain. So again, but with emotional 
eating, we often see low levels. And so low levels of our neurotransmitter dopamine is involved in food cravings, unreasonable decision-making, poor executive function. And so low dopamine can also lead you to being more impulsive as a personality trait. And all the above can actually contribute to the development of binge eating issues. Now let's talk about low serotonin. Low serotonin is also linked to emotional eating. And Serotonin is linked to the satisfaction and a sense of fullness after a meal. And so when we have low amounts of low serotonin, we never feel satisfied. Nothing we eat makes us feel like we've had enough. And there's actually a huge link with major depression and emotional eating because of the underlying biochemical factor of low serotonin. A lot of the times we see depression and low serotonin together, and we also see the emotional eating in the mix here. Third, let's start talking about cortisol. And we all know cortisol is our stress hormone. To understand cortisol, you have to understand that cortisol stimulates your fat and your carbohydrate metabolism, creating a surge of energy in our bodies. So when we have too much cortisol circulating in our bloodstream, this can actually increase the activity of neurons in our hypothalamus gland that signals to us, I'm hungry. And this is signaling to your brain, I need food. And so when we're stressed out, our brain can actually think that we're hungrier, even when there's no need for that energy and our energy hasn't changed. And it's important to understand that high cortisol creates a surge of blood sugar. And this actually makes us crave certain foods such as sweet and salty fat combos, exactly what you were saying. It's that sweet, salty, fatty food combo that, you know, high cortisol drives us to eat. Okay. I think it's so important that we're going through these things, but there's one question I wanted to ask because at the beginning of the episode, we said if you're in fight or flight, you're often not hungry. But what you said there is that our stress hormone cortisol is often actually like driving your cravings. So can we just dig into that a little bit? Because I'm not quite clear on that. Yeah. So what we're experiencing when we lose our appetite during stressful situations is when we're stressed, all of a sudden our stress hormones get pumped out, cortisol, along with adrenaline. And adrenaline is that fast pumping, I'm scared, I don't know what's going on. We've all experienced that surge of adrenaline. You could also experience that, like Louise, I feel like you experience it all the time because you're always on these exciting work projects and the adrenaline's always staying real high. And so it's actually the adrenaline that suppresses our appetite. But people need to understand that, you know, let's relate this to like, let's say you go through a breakup and all all of a sudden you lose your appetite and you know the stress is still there but all of a sudden the adrenaline starts to go down but the cortisol stays high that's all of a sudden when we start to feel rivacious with our appetite so it's just really important to understand that it's actually the adrenaline that will lower your appetite but cortisol itself without the adrenaline will make you feel starving all the time that makes so much sense and also what was coming to me then was how that can be why you can push yourself into fight or flight as soon as you wake up if you pick up your phone. I do it every single morning. It's a cycle that I still have not been able to break. It's something that I really, really, really have to get a hold on. But by me picking up my phone as soon as I, I mean, I do take a couple of moments of gratitude and I, I say a little prayer and set my intention for the day, but then I reach straight from my phone and, you know, yeah, you're right. It's like adrenaline, excitement, but also sometimes fear, sometimes things going wrong, sometimes someone trolling me on TikTok, like whatever it is. 
that makes so much sense. So now I understand that if I want to regulate that appetite more in the morning, I need to be regulating that adrenaline in the morning, which means regulating the fight or flight in the morning, which means regulating no fucking phone in the bedroom (laughs) is basically what I'm taking from that. Yeah, you're exactly right. So I mean, yeah, take those tips for yourself because we got to put ourselves in a calm state as soon as we wake up for our hunger cues to even start to come about. Yeah, I know. We've got we to gotta take our own advice, haven't we? But that is one cycle that I really... I'm working on breaking. I am, I promise. Um, now, one of the craziest things that I learned in therapy is, like I said at the beginning, is this concept of warmth. Now, my therapist basically explained to me how all of the things that I do in my life as coping mechanisms, they like make me feel warmer. And so I love warm food. I love carbohydrate foods. Like that's why I don't love a cold, crunchy salad. I mean, it's a bit different now. I live in Mexico and it's so freaking hot. But in England, I would always, always, always choose like a carbohydrate-based meal over a salad. And from a psychological perspective, my therapist started to help me to understand the poor little inner child inside of me who was so desperate for love, like from her mom, probably mainly from her dad, who just wanted to be held and hugged and physically warm. Like everyone knows that we've adopted this kitten. And when I take it out of the burrito that we wrap it up in to sleep, I am blown away every time at how hot it is. It's like so warm and it has such warmth. And I'm like, oh, wow, like that is why it loves it in there. That's why it purrs. But what therapy has taught me is that we are so cold in today's society. We are very disconnected. We're very judgmental. We connect with our phones more than we connect with the humans sitting next to us. We're lonely. We don't live in communities. We don't live connected to the ground all of these things. And so I really actually look at everything on a sliding spectrum of temperature nowadays. And I want to talk here about this concept of attachment hunger. We talk about it all the time on the podcast, like this deep burning desire for someone to love you, someone to pick you, someone to choose you, everything to be okay. And what that means is really for everything to be warm and loving. And you just have this hope and this fancy and this belief that they'll, that they will bring you this warmth. You've told me that there's an interesting fact about basically food and oxytocin and our love hormones. So I'd love it if we could go into oxytocin and these concepts of, yeah, attachment hunger and warmth, I guess. Yeah. So it's actually been shown in studies that low levels of oxytocin is actually associated with food addiction. Like there's actual studies out there that show this. So oxytocin is, for those of you who don't know, it's our love hormone. And our oxytocin pathways can actually be formed as a baby. So with the insecure attachment, they've been shown to baby have lower levels of oxytocin pathways. And so oxytocin turned out to be a downstream mediator of the effects of leptin. So this means our hunger hormone, actually, it turns off our hunger hormone when we have higher amounts of this love hormone, oxytocin. And so this means that oxytocin suppresses our appetite and our food intake. So ever notice when you're in love, you feel more fulfilled, you feel more cared for that our food cravings go down. I know I actually am someone who, when I'm alone, I find myself overeating way more than when I'm in a loving relationship. And I'm sure a lot of people see those patterns themselves. 
But, you know, in the studies, it shows that oxytocin reduces reward-driven food intake, but it shows that it does not reduce hunger-driven food intake, which is very interesting to see because the reward-driven food intake is the emotional eating aspect of things. And so our levels of oxytocin, these levels rise during bonding and during orgasm and laughing with friends, being in community. And so you can understand that when we are hungry for this attachment, hungry for closeness to someone you know, how having low oxytocin, we can turn to food as a substitute for this hunger. And so that's so interesting to understand that we're all just like wanting to like feel connected and to feel seen. And so I also wanted to point out there was, there's actually this theory and it's called oxytocin, the oxytocin deficiency theory. And so this shows that a combination of our genetics and early childhood experiences and other social factors can cause some people to, again, have these reduced oxytocin signaling. And so here you see hunger for love and hunger for bonding because we're not getting it. And so This actually leads to impaired suppression of reward-driven food intake. Oxytocin, when we have the right amounts, it helps to lower our stress hormones as well. So that bonding feeling and feeling close to someone, our stress goes down. And so you can see how the lessons we've learned about our attachment styles and where those are rooted, they parallel with the wisdom that we need to succeed in having healthy eating patterns. It's really important to understand what are you hungry for in your life? Is it the food or is it connection? And that's how we're actually going to truly heal, understanding where that is rooted. That is so beautiful where you said, what are you actually hungry for in your life? And I think it's a big part of my healing journey that I'm still going on. It's like way easier for me to just isolate and disconnect and stay at home. Like that's always been my go-to, but I'm learning that I really need to connect and connecting outwards is going to be one of the key ways that I can break this emotional eating cycle that I live through. So I love that. Now let's get into some solutions. I know that people are here for the solutions because if they've listened to this, they're probably struggling and you're not alone. So. I know you have so, so, so many. I was wondering if we could just dig into some of them. Yeah, so there are so many solutions that we can actually start to dig into. One being we really got to manage our stress hormones. Again, the major one, cortisol. So when we lower our stress hormone cortisol, we start to regulate our blood sugar levels and we will start to feel less vivacious. And so again, how do we lower our stress hormones? You can look to things like being in nature and making sure that you're sleeping well and spending time with community and your friends and things like breath work and making sure you're experiencing creativity in your life and playing in your life. And so again, we talk about the nervous system. We got to make sure that we're stabilizing the nervous system, anything that will help to regulate it. And with this, we can see we have this vagus nerve that's actually one of the longest cranial nerves in our body. And this nerve is actually in charge of our fight or flight response and how we react to things in our life. So there are exercises we can do for this nerve to strengthen this nerve. Things like cold plunge and singing and humming, even something like splashing cold water on your face can help reset the stress response. I like getting things like massages because touch is touch, right? So a lot of people can regulate their nervous system by getting a massage. 
We can also take things like supplements and certain adaptogenic herbs. Some of my favorite adaptogens, these are herbs that help to regulate your stress hormones, things like ashwagandha and something called rhodiola. I really love lion's mane, also helps with stress. Things like reishi mushroom and cordyceps mushroom. Again, these are easy fixes of how you can bring start to bring your cortisol down. What is very important is we need to support our blood sugar levels. And there's easy things we can do during the day to do this. Making sure that we're eating solid meals during the day, making sure we're getting a really great fat-carb-protein ratio. Protein is very important to stabilize our blood sugar levels. So we make sure that we're getting protein with every single meal and make sure that it's actually high quality. Going for walks after meals can really help. Putting something called apple cider vinegar in your meals before you eat your meals is really great to balance the blood sugar levels. Again, there's also herbs that we can use, something called gymnea, something called fenugreek, berberine, rosemary. We could all take these things to start lowering our blood sugar levels. Again, I can't stress how much eating enough is important. So those of you who are eating a smoothie for breakfast and a smoothie for lunch, you can understand that you're not eating enough and your blood sugar levels are going to be a roller coaster. You're not getting enough fuel to actually fuel your body during these stressful times. So no wonder you're going to be rivacious later at night trying to binge. Another thing to look at is the importance of exercise and especially weightlifting. So weightlifting actually lowers our cortisol levels. It actually helps with insulin resistance. It's one of the best exercises you can do. If you do deal with high stress, you want to start lifting weights. And we also want to make sure that we're exercising for our stress levels and for the regulation in our nervous system. So if you're an overly anxious, stressed out person all the time, you don't want to be doing high intensity. You want to be sticking to the more gentle workouts because, again, it's important to note that high intensity drives cortisol even more. So if you're already dealing in a stressed out state, you don't want to be driving your cortisol even more through the roof and becoming more inflamed and, again, driving more emotional eating cycles. Again, supporting the biochemistry. And that is very important for people to understand that if you do have these addictive tendencies and lower amounts of neurotransmitters, so important to understand that we can actually support these low levels of neurotransmitters with environmental and like lifestyle and supplemental certain ways boosting serotonin and dopamine. There are certain things we have to look at. You have to make sure that you're not nutrient deficient. And you also have to make sure that your gut is not imbalanced in terms of the microbes and the inflammation in your gut. This can all lead to low levels of serotonin and dopamine. And so again, probiotics can help here for gut health. People have to understand that most of our serotonin and our dopamine is actually made in our gut. So if we don't have the right amount of healthy microbes, if, our, if we're dealing with dysbiosis in the gut, we're not going to be making the right amount of neurotransmitters to feel good. And we're going to be staying in that stressed out, overly anxious state. So gut health is really important there. Again, other ways to both serotonin and dopamine, you can do massage or meditation and exercise. And some of my favorite supplements to boost both serotonin and dopamine, things like rhodiola, something called bacopa. You can use something called L-theanine. And then you have to look at the nutrients. Again, nutrients are the building blocks of your neurotransmitters. So number one, if you're not getting enough B6, if you're not getting enough B12, if you're not getting enough 
vitamin D, we could all have low neurotransmitters. And so if we want to look at ways to boost our oxytocin without being in a relationship, because I know a lot of us are in a relationships and we're trying to look for that emotional closeness with someone, it's important to understand we can get an oxytocin boost from laughing with our friends and just being in a good, trusted community. You could also boost your oxytocin by doing something nice for someone or cooking a meal and eating with someone that you care about versus eating alone. That's a really great way to boost your oxytocin. Also giving more hugs and again, just like finding a very trustworthy community that you can feel safe with. And so we really need to start to pay attention to our hunger. And I actually recommend someone to start an emotional diary so that you can actually understand your habits a little bit better. Understand when you get in those moods and really self-evaluate um, what you're going through. You can keep a record for the times that you eat and when you are not physically hungry. And it's so important here not to judge yourself. And it's all about self-awareness. And just to like give yourself that grace to... I'm just doing what I need to do to feel okay. And so if you do come into those times of self-soothing around food, give yourself grace and then maybe look to have another way to soothe yourself. Call a friend, dance around the house, do some breath work, go for a walk. It's really important to just recognize the habits so that we can start to change them. Yes, you have just given us so much value there on how we can support our biochemistry and I definitely know that one of my biggest problems is the regulating the blood sugar levels. I don't eat good enough. I don't eat regularly enough. And even when I do, I'm often making a smoothie, which I thought was good. But now you've just referenced like I probably need some more whole foods, and not just like throwing everything in a blender and just whizzing it up. So I love how much you've shared there. And I think it's different for everyone. Like for me, it's really easy to get out in nature. Now I'm in in Mexico, I can go and get in the ocean or put my feet on the beach. Whereas like in the winter in the UK or in Canada, for example, where you are, that can be a lot more difficult. So I think it's about how can you develop something at home that works for you where you're not relying on going on holidays, because this has to be like a everyday type of thing to start to rewire those neurotransmitters because otherwise these cycles are just going to continue to win. So yeah, I think as we come to wrap up this episode, I'm so grateful for all you shared with us. There's been so much info on here that we've never ever shared before on the podcast. I'm just wondering if you have anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah. So food might feel like a way to cope, but it's very important to address the feelings that trigger the hunger under that. We have to feel our emotions. And I think a lot of us, again, as food is a numbing source. So to get to the root is to understand where those emotions are coming from. And again, this is a subconscious thing, but this is how we're going to heal these emotional eating patterns. Again, we can use a lot of the things of boosting our neurotransmitters and dealing with our stress levels. But at the end of the day, if we're trying to numb an emotion, it's very important to understand what that emotion is and how we can get past it and feel through it and process our emotions the proper way. Yeah, so important. I just feel like we're learning so much from having you on this podcast. So I'm so grateful for everything you've shared and how much you're sharing with us, how much self-reflection you're giving us the opportunity to do. 
So thank you so much. I know we're going to keep diving into things like this. We also weren't able to touch on eating disorders today, particularly anorexia, bulimia, and maybe even binge eating disorder rather than maybe the more emotional binge eating that we were talking about today. So I am sure we will get back on at some point and start to go through those. But most of all, thank you. What an epic episode. I've learned so much and I'm so grateful and I can't wait to have you back on soon. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Louise. And I'm so excited to keep doing these podcasts with you and share this critical information. Yes, me too. Thank you so much. See you next episode.